hey everyone, and welcome back to our online ministry at Grace Baptist Church. As I reported in the announcement email this week, we've decided not to rush to resume in-person worship services. But we are putting plans in place and we want to begin a conversation with you about it. So please read the announcement carefully and discuss it in your groups this week. Now, if you're new to church, uh, we're looking forward to the day when we can meet with you in person. In the meantime, share a comment below. Let us know that you're there. Now, if you're a hockey fan, uh, you'll be familiar with the name Chris Pronger. Uh, he was born in Dryden, Ontario. He's a Hockey Hall of Famer. Uh, he won two Olympic gold medals with Team Canada, appeared in the Stanley Cup finals with three different teams, and he finally won the cup with the Anaheim Ducks in 2007. He was a winner. But he's also known as one of the dirtier players in the league. Uh, he was suspended eight times in his career. Uh, fans would actually hold up signs reading, Pronger will spear his grandmother. <laughs> Six foot six, 220 pounds, he would just punish opposing players with brutal hits. He was often accompanying with his stick. But he was forced into retirement in 2011 as a result of three concussions he suffered. His vision was impaired from a hit he took from the blade of another player's stick. His concussion symptoms, so severe that bright lights give him headaches. Even simple activities make him dizzy. He was in an interview with Sports Illustrated and he admitted, I'm guessing a few guys around the league heard about my injuries and started thinking, oh, sweet karma. But I didn't play the game to make friends. I played the game to win. If what happened to me is a byproduct of that, I accept it. I'd be a hypocrite to ask for sympathy now. Now, Chris Pronger was committed to winning at all costs. And he wasn't surprised that he suffered the consequences of that way of life. But he reminds me of Jacob. And Jacob wanted to win at all costs too. And as we saw last time, that involved cheating his brother, lying to his father, and dishonoring the God who had promised to bless him. We're ready to see him get what's coming to him. Yet we fear too much of that because we see too much of ourselves in him. And we not rather not end up with a concussion or blurry vision. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 28. We're continuing on from last time. So if you don't have a Bible, why don't you pause the video at this point and find your place. Now, before I read, I want to set the scene for you. When we meet Jacob in chapter 28, he's desperate and alone. Although he won his father's blessing, he's not feeling very blessed. His brother Esau is intent on killing him, and so he left town in a hurry. After traveling for three days, the text says that he came to a certain place. It doesn't even mention the name of the place at first because it's such a nowhere town. You know when you're like traveling somewhere by car and you have to stop, but the only place you can find is so nondescript that you don't even think it deserves to be called a town? That's where Jacob is. The sun sets, and he's in darkness, both physically and emotionally. He finds a stone, and he famously puts it under his head and lays down to sleep. Now, it doesn't mention that use of a stone for a pillow because the Hebrew word for stone sometimes means firm neck support. It's not that people in the ancient Near East used rocks for pillows all the time. The point of mentioning it is to tell us that 
this great heir of blessing, Jacob, doesn't even own a pillow at this point. He's got to prop his head up with a stone. Now, as he lays down to sleep, I'm expecting him to get bitten by a snake or maybe be attacked by robbers. Surely he's going to be paid back for all that he did. Instead, he has a dream. And I want you to follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This is the word of God. Everything about this dream is a surprise. Especially because we were expecting payback for Jacob. As Moses narrates what's happening, you can almost hear the shock in his voice and he wants you to feel it. I'm not sure if you heard when I was reading, but in verse 12, he said, behold, there was a ladder. <laughs> then he says, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then again, behold, the Lord stood above it. Now, behold sounds like old Elizabethan English, but it translates one of my favorite Hebrew words. You might translate it as, get this, but you've got to wave your arms around in excitement as you read it. If Moses was a YouTuber, he'd be pointing and having sound effects going off. So what is Moses so excited about? What, what's this triple behold, get this, what, what, what's he trying to do? The excitement is that God has shown Jacob a bridge between heaven and earth. Now, the word can be translated ladder, but with a steady stream of angels going up and down on it, it's hardly like any ladder I've ever seen. We're to picture something more like a grand staircase. In fact, this is exactly what the people had tried to build at the Tower of Babel. They tried to construct a ladder that reached to heaven. But God frustrated the arrogance. The arrogance that believed that human effort and ingenuity could somehow reach God. Here, Jacob is given access to God, a bridge to heaven, and he did nothing to work for it. He did nothing to deserve it. The angels are going out into the world, carrying out their tasks, coming back, and God could have sent one of them to Jacob, of course. But he decides to come himself. He gives Jacob the VIP treatment, a personal meeting with his creator. It's incredible. And I'm asking, how is Jacob going to respond to such incredible grace? Now, when God speaks, I'm kind of expecting a lecture from God. Surely punishment. Instead, God tells of a gift. In verse 13, he promises Jacob the land on which you lie. 
In verse 14, he says, you shall spread out to the, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Now, the offer of your own home to someone who is homeless would be astounding. Jacob's family were renters. They didn't own their own home. They were forced to move from one place to the next. But Jacob has so ruined his relationships that he's not even welcome in his own trailer park. And now God's promising not only a place to call home, but this wide expanse of land. It's incredible. How will Jacob respond to such amazing grace? But God continues to speak. In verse 14, he promises that in you, in, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, Jacob has never been a bless you kind of guy. He's been more of a bless me type. He's experienced also, though, the pain and regret of that as well. The idea that he and his descendants would come to be known for the way they blessed the world is something he knows that he doesn't deserve. It's incredible. So how will he respond to such amazing grace? Finally, God ends with a more personal statement. It's a statement of his personal commitment to Jacob. It comes in verse 15, and in case we didn't realize that this was a climax, guess what he does? He uses that word, behold, again. <laughs> now for the fourth time in just four verses. God says to him, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God will go with him. And the promise to keep you is a vow of protection. God's going to guard Jacob on this journey. He's going to safely bring him home. And so often that's what we long for, right? Someone on the journey with us who understands us and cares for us. Jacob knows he doesn't deserve this. It's incredible. So how will he respond to such amazing grace? Now, part of me is feeling uncomfortable as this remarkable dream comes to an end. It reminds me of times in my life when someone has given me a gift that's so thoughtful or generous that I think, I'm not that thoughtful. How would I ever repay them? How could I ever thank them enough? So how will Jacob answer such unconditional grace? As we watch his response, it's first of all clear, he's taken aback by it all. Everything that he's seen and heard is, is moving. In verse 16, he says, surely the Lord is in this place. In verse 17, it says that he was, af he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? And Jacob sounds like a teenager from the 80s. This place is awesome! He's struck by the sense of God's presence in a place that felt like nowhere. In verse 18, he's feeling generous. He decides to give God his pillow. He takes a stone that he'd been sleeping on, and now he sets it upright and makes a pillar of it. And he pours oil on it to consecrate it. And then he speaks. And I almost wish he hadn't. Starting in verse 20, Jacob makes a vow. And that's not a bad way to respond. The problem is the way he begins it. 
he starts with the word if. And that word affects everything else that he says. He says, if God will be with me. But in verse 15, God has just said, behold, I am with you. And the same if affects the rest of what he says. So it's, if God will keep me in the way. But in verse 15, God had told him, I will keep you wherever you go. Then Jacob sounds like he's just rubbed a genie's bottle and he knows he's got three wishes, so he better make them count. So he says, if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, he's just been promised worldwide blessing and more land than he could possibly ever personally visit. But now he's haggling to make sure that the deal includes meal tickets and a clothing allowance. He's in no place to be negotiating. And yet he's putting conditions on a God who put no conditions on him. And what's Jacob vowing to do in return? Well, we have to wait till we get to verse 21 until we've waded through all of his conditions. But finally says, then the Lord shall be my God. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, does Jacob really have such high standards? It's like, Jacob's on The Bachelor and he's listed all of the things that he expects of the Lord in order for him to give him a rose. So how else will Jacob reward God for meeting his rigorous standards? Well, he goes on to say, this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Now you have to put yourself in God's shoes if you, as you're reading that. If you're God, how's that hitting you? You've just promised Jacob all the land to the north and the south and the east and the west. So how excited are you to hear that if you perform well in the probationary period, he might give you his headrest as a house? <laughs> Finally, Jacob gets to the climax of his vow. I almost expect him to say, behold, because I think he's really pleased with himself at this point. If God measures up to his standards and assuring him with his constant abiding presence and his gracious protection, and if the food tickets uh, don't run out and the clothing allowance is adequate, then Jacob, according to verse 21, is actually gonna start tithing. <laughs> he says prou proudly, and of all that you give me, I shall give a tenth to you. I think this is the North American church. We hear of the incredible, unconditional, unconditional grace of God. And like Jacob, we're impressed. We're like, Jesus is awesome. And we feel we should do something religious. We don't set up stone pillars anymore. But we try to add a little religious activity to our lives. We go to church when we can. We pray from time to time. But when it comes to actually treating God as God, we're not going to rush into a commitment like that. We're not quite prepared to give him authority over our time or our thoughts or the big decisions that we face. We resist the things that God commands, like serving, giving, fellowship. Hard and fast commitments like tithing feel way too restrictive. We'd rather give a little of what's left over than a fixed number like 
we hear his incredible promises. And like Jacob, we think, I'd like to evaluate his faithfulness first. All of this talk of his presence and love and eternal inheritance, that's all well and good, but I want to see how God affects my bottom line. I'm going to wait it out before I'm willing to go all in. If that's how you're feeling this morning, I need to tell you that conditional obedience is no response to unconditional grace. Putting God on probation when he's offered you a pardon from a life sentence, that is stunning and inappropriate. Conditional obedience is no response to unconditional grace. And yet, that's what we give God when we put off commands like baptism, when we avoid commitments at church, when we refuse to make him Lord of our work, when we ignore the boundaries he's placed on our sexuality. Or when every threat to our finances or blow to our health or challenge to our family becomes a test of whether God is faithful or not. It's like we put God to the test again every time. Wait to see how you come through for me this time, God, and then I'll decide whether I can trust you. Where have you put God on probation in your life? Where are you taking a wait-and-see approach to your relationship with him? Where are you holding back in your commitment? Because conditional obedience is no response to unconditional grace. Now, the contrast between Jacob and Abraham at this point is profound. When God made a similar promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, even though it seemed less realistic, frankly, more incredible, his response is enshrined as one of the great verses of the Old Testament. You know, Genesis 15, 6, it simply reads, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That faith wasn't perfect, but it was real and it was unconditional. And it resulted in commitment. He not only gave a tenth of all that he had, but he was ready to sacrifice his only son if God commanded it. Now, as Moses read this story to the Israelites, as he told them, uh, told a, a generation of Israelites about to enter the promised land, they knew exactly what he was talking about. The application to them was obvious. They couldn't help but think of their parents' generation because God had dramatically and miraculously delivered them from Egypt. And instead of winning over their loyalty, they just tested him again and again, daily. We'll probably die of thirst. We'll likely starve to death. There are giants in the land who will probably kill us. They'd seen that testing God like that, putting him on probation, had led to their, the death of that previous generation. For 40 years, they had watched them die one by one in the desert. And they didn't want to follow in their footsteps. Now, according to the New Testament, we all stand at the foot of Jacob's ladder. The amazing depiction of a staircase that reaches to heaven, the bridge that connects heaven and earth, that was a foretaste of what Jesus came to provide. In fact, Jesus said that in John chapter 1, verse 51. He, he was in his first meeting with Nathanael, and Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending 
on the Son of Man. Jesus isn't saying that he'll, he'll take Nathanael to Jacob's ladder. He isn't saying he'll teach him about Jacob's ladder. He's saying that he is Jacob's ladder. That's why he gives this unusual picture of angels of angels of God going back and forth between heaven and earth on him. He's trying to make a point. He's the bridge between a holy God and an unholy world. He's opened up access to heaven that, frankly, we don't deserve. We all stand at the foot of Jacob's ladder. So how will you respond to that kind of grace? Now, you may not be a nomad like Jacob was. You might not live in a trailer park or feel homeless. And so the promise of land, like Jacob was given, may not feel all that meaningful to you. But at some point, we all face the reality that this world is not our permanent home. People from all cultures, all different backgrounds throughout history, they've all longed for a better place. We yearn for a world free from sickness, free from death and injustice. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. And Jesus promises it to those who trust him, those who would look to him in faith. In John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, he says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus offers us a permanent place to call home, and we know we don't deserve it. And so we realize that we all stand at the foot of Jacob's ladder, that that bridge between heaven and earth has been opened in Jesus Christ. So how will you respond to that kind of grace? Now, it would have been kind of hard, frankly, Hard to believe for a selfish, me-first guy like Jacob, who was used to leaving a, 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 just a trail of pain in his wake, to be told that he would be a channel of blessing to the world. But in Jesus Christ, we're offered that same promise. That same hope is hold, held out to us. God can redeem our selfish lives and make us channels of his blessing. He gives gifts to share. He, he equips us to serve in the church. And as he says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his work, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We can live lives of significance because of Jesus. And because of him, it doesn't have to be a Chris Pronger kind of legacy where people say, wow, he seemed to accomplish all his goals, but sure was miserable if you stood in his way. We know that a life of significance like that couldn't be possible on our own. But God offers it to us anyway. We all stand at the foot of Jacob's ladder. How will you respond to that kind of grace? Now, I can only imagine the promise of God's presence to Jacob when he was alone and away from home with an uncertain future would have been deeply comforting. And yet the same assurance is ours in Jesus Christ. 
He's literally called at his birth, Emmanuel, which means God with us. His final words in Matthew 28, 20 are famous. Behold, get this, I am with you always to the end of the age. I can't, I can't even stand to be with me always, but Jesus promises to. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're never alone. He never gives up on you, never walks away. And we know that we don't deserve any of that, but he promises it to us anyway. We all stand at the foot of Jacob's ladder. So how will you respond to that grace? God's unconditional grace calls for our unconditional commitment. He deserves our trust. Romans 2.4 says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't just admire God for his grace. Take a step right now as an active response. Not to pay God back because you could never do that. Not to even the score because that's off the table. But to treat God as God instead of a deity who's auditioning for our approval. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we deserve the consequences of our lives. We deserve pain. We deserve all that we see in our, in our, in our hearts that is wrong. And yet you come to us with these incredible promises of hope. You pour out grace into our lives that we don't deserve. You treat us with a love and generosity that we don't understand. And so I pray, Father, that we would not just be impressed by it, but I pray that we would be transformed by it. I pray that you would reveal to each one, reveal to my heart and everyone listening, specific steps of commitment that we might make to honor you as our Lord, as our God. We can't repay you, but such amazing, unconditional grace surely demands our unconditional commitment. Move us to that, Father, for we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I pray that today's message has helped you to see the incredible grace that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. And I hope that it's led you into the kind of response that God's grace is worthy of. But if the message has stirred up questions or areas where you'd like prayer, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if there's someone in your life who'd be encouraged by this message, then share it with them and continue that process. Be a channel of God's grace in their life. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.